Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by uh, Kobus Van Staden at the Center for Chinese Studies in lovely Cape Town, South Africa at the Stellenbosch University. Kobus, how are you this afternoon? I'm great, thanks. And you? Uh, wonderful. And for two more weeks, it, uh, it's an early good morning to Anne Sherman, who is in Washington right now, but will eventually be heading uh, back east uh, to Asia. And uh, good morning to you. Good morning. And just, uh, Anne, the voice may not be familiar, but she is the voice on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. She does a lot of the moderating that we do over there. So we really encourage you to check out that page. 13,000 fans strong. We're really thrilled. And we're really excited that we got a couple nice plugs. Anne, who did we get some plugs from this week? We got plugs from historians of Africa and also from the Oxford uh, China the Oxford University China Africa Network. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, and so um, definitely check out. There's a great debate going on on the Oxford page, and Historians of Africa is also a great resource, and they have um, also named us a great resource. So I encourage you to check them out on our Facebook page. Well, it's really a uh, just a great discussion that goes on, and really what's exciting is the fact that it allows people to talk directly to both Chinese, to Africans, and those of us who are just interested in the subject. So once again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Okay, enough about that. Let's get on with our podcast today. We've got three topics. Uh, one, there was a little bit of a um, of, of a cat fight this week. And, uh, and I didn't say that, by the way, just because Hillary is female. Um, but uh, there was a little bit of, a, of a, a little bitch slapping going on back and forth between the Chinese and Hillary um, over the Chinese in Africa. Hillary kind of sparked um, a, a, a rather you know interesting response from the Chinese. We'll get on with that. Uh, then Malawi, a law went into effect in Malawi last week, uh, which banned uh, you know foreigners from engaging in small business trading. We talked about this earlier in the year. Now the law actually went into effect. A number of Chinese businesses have closed. Uh, there was a little bit of a discussion on Twitter about that. And then now there are calls in Nigeria for something similar. So is this a trend and is this a way for a backlash to occur against small Chinese traders, where I know a lot of tension has been building. And finally, we're going to talk a little bit about, well, ourselves. Um, all of us have actually received a number of inquiries from people, both on our Facebook page and directly, about who we are, what our agendas are, what our backgrounds are. So we thought that this would be a good opportunity to introduce who we are, what we do, uh, why we're doing this podcast, and just to give you a little bit of an introduction to the kind of voices behind the show and behind our Facebook page, behind our Twitter accounts, and of course, behind our blog at China Africa Project. So we'll do a little bit of uh, personal housekeeping there. So let's get started with Hillary. Uh, what was the brouhaha this week, Anne, that, uh, that Hillary sparked when she was on a tour uh, of, of Africa? So Hillary arrived in Senegal on Wednesday, and she gave a speech um, that kind of took a, it was kind of a veiled attack on China. She said that, you know, uh, Africa should look for partners that add value rather than uh, extract from Africa. And, um, you know, while she never named China, everyone kind of knew who she was talking about. Um, and China, of course, responded saying that this was ignorant, that, you know, China has been uh, contributing greatly to African development and, you know, Western, Western, develop, Western aid to Africa has largely failed um, and that, you know, China-Africa relations are win-win, they're mutually beneficial. And so Clinton has no place to come to Africa 
um, and say these things. And, you know, I mean, this is most likely uh, Hillary Clinton's last official visit to Africa um, and very late in the game, as most would say. And um, she's visiting a lot of countries. I think it's six or seven. Um, and, it's actually you know, she's actually 11 in, countries this time. Oh, 11. Excuse me. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, Senegal is very, I think, kind of a interesting place to start. I mean, it's a democracy, a strong U.S. partner. It also has some security threats right now because of Mali. Um, and, you know, I think she's focusing on two main things in, in this speech, but also in her whole tour of Africa. Um, one is this, you know, the commercial engagement and kind of this concern from the U.S. that China is kind of uh, closing the U.S. out of African markets. And, um, you know, the um, U.S. companies are really not as present um, commercially as Chinese are. And the second thing is security and, you know, U.S. national interests, um, counterterrorism, uh, things like that. And so, you know, she's promoting democracy, human rights, transparency. Um, and I think she's also kind of responding to uh, South African President Zuma's remarks last week after the FOCAC. Um, he said, you know, Right now, China's relationship with Africa is not sustainable. Um, you know, China can continue to invest, uh, cannot continue to invest in Africa without returns from Africa. Um, and he kind of called for this for an equal partnership. Um, and so I think in a way, she's kind of harking on that and saying, you know, yeah, Africa needs equal partners. What do you think? Okay, Kobus, before we get to the context, because this is not the first time that Hillary Clinton has said something like this, let me give you some of the quotes that will set up our discussion. Uh, she made this comments, as Anne mentioned, in Senegal, and she said that the United States was committed to, quote, a model of sustainable partnership that adds value rather than extracts it from Africa. Okay, so that was first part of her quote. And unlike other countries, and this is where she kind of, you know, got a little bit, uh, you know, again, the veiled threats towards or the veiled comments towards China, America will stand up for democracy and universal human rights, even when it might be easier to look the other way and keep the resources flowing. Kobus, uh, when she was in Zambia, uh, I think it's last year, it may have been this year, but it may have been last year, she actually came out directly against the Chinese and warned Africans about, you know, China's neo-colonial ambitions in Africa. Now she took a more subtle approach to this. What is the reaction from Africans that you think and the African media on this to these comments? You know, you know, it, it seemed to me that in the first place, the African media was simply just reporting on the fact that she said it and then also reporting on the the response from China via um, Xinhua. Um, and then after that, a whole lot of, of um, Africans came out and, you know, and actually made the point that they feel that, uh, that uh, China-Africa trade is a win-win uh, relationship for them, um, you know, and and I think I think there was a little bit of veiled cynicism in the the stuff that I've read that I've read that uh, you know the you know the implication was a were two things in the first place you know kind of a slight implication saying that you know it's a little bit weird for her to arrive in a for example in a place like Senegal and then praising them for their you know their their kind of democracy and governance and so on as if she's uh, you know as if she's like kind of um, grading you know the work of a of, a, of 
school children. Um, and then in the second place, it was also, you know, a little bit um, of a feeling, you know, that, that it's it's kind of rich from a Western country, you know, kind of with 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 the kind of complicated background that that implies, uh, you know, kind of to to now, you know, say that the, that the relationship is isn't, you know, doesn't have it carry its own baggage. Okay, well, let's get now. Bef- and- oh, I'm sorry, just and very quickly before we get on to a little more context, let me give the Chinese response. Because the Chinese came out quickly, and what was so interesting was the speed with which the response, and I wonder, and this is something I'd like to get from both of you, I wonder if the State Department expected the Chinese to respond so powerfully. Uh, So, here's the headline from Xinhua, U.S. plot to sow discord between China and Africa is doomed to fail. This was the quote that I liked the best. Uh, Whether Clinton was ignorant of the facts on the ground, this is a quote, or chose to disregard them, her implication that China has been extracting Africa's wealth for itself is utterly wide of the truth. They did not mince words when they responded to Hillary Clinton's insinuation that the Chinese are are profiting from their relationship in Africa in an inappropriate way. And, you know, on the Facebook page, the, the, the immediate kind of thing that I saw was, you know, I went to Howard French's article talking about the inconsistencies in the American approach in Africa, that they are, of course, you know, cozying up to a number of dictators in the name of fight against terrorism. Uh, but somehow that inconsistency doesn't come up in Hillary Clinton's discourse. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I was going to add that we also had some reactions from uh, different Africans on our Facebook page. Um, you know, we had Babakar Sen, who's in Senegal, who said that, you know, the coverage in Senegal was basically that everyone here kind of seems to already know that there is this competition between the U.S. and China. Um, and he says that, you know, the Senegalese government is kind of trying to play both games, kind of, uh, you know, promote their transparency with governments to the U.S., but also, uh, you know, kind of benefit from the trade and the win-win relations in China. And he says that, um, you know, he thought it was interesting that Clinton didn't, you know, Clinton comes to, Ch- to Senegal and attacks China rather than promoting, you know, the the benefits from the U.S.-Senegal or U.S.-African uh, relations. And um, some of the things he cited were, you know, the, the presence of Peace Corps members or um, different uh, methods of soft power that U.S. obviously has an advantage with in in Africa, um, and I think that you know while while people are going to you know China and many people are going to criticize Clinton's remarks, I think it's still interesting that U.S. soft power does kind of prevail, and that um, you know people still do want democracy and they want freedom, and people don't and, you know Africans you know while they do see that the U.S. policy in Africa is often hypocritical. I think that, you know, they do still want to come study in the U.S. and have political systems that are like, uh, more like the U.S. than in China. Yeah, I mean... Um, I wonder, sorry to interrupt, I was wondering, um, how does how does all the stuff that Hillary was saying, how does it fit into the kind of the problems that the African Growth and Opportunities Act is having in Congress? Like, or, um, you know, kind of the, from from what, you know, I might be wrong, but from my, what I gather is that it's, um, you know, kind of it, it's it's stalled and that, uh, you know, that apparently a lot of African businesses are, are losing a lot of business because of the stalling of, of it in within the political process in America. Um, do I get do I have that right? How, how does that play into her kind of promises of, of future kind of commerce and relationships? Listen, I don't think the African Growth and Opportunity Act is is really a high priority on Capitol Hill right now. In light of the fact that we are in the midst of a massive election campaign, mm. uh, Congress is also you know the the healthcare 
debate is is in full swing. Uh, big parts of the healthcare law went into effect, and so frankly, these kinds of trade deals, um, you know, are not very popular in the United States right now. Particularly, free trade acts of any kind are not popular. The president really had to expend an enormous amount of political capital just to get the South Korean free trade uh, deal through. So it's hard to believe that even though everybody loves an African, you know, free trade deal of some kind or even a benefit. Um, that Congress has the bandwidth or the attention right now, given the, the domestic pol- political situation, to actually do anything about that. And what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, the U.S. is about to go off a fiscal cliff if they don't kind of um, work close, like quickly. And you know, the defense budget is about to be cut in half. And uh, on Friday, they announced that employment is up to 8.3 percent. So, I mean. Congress has sort of already set its agenda for the lame duck period and for the rest of um, this session. And uh, I can tell you that this that AGOA is not high priority. Now, that's an opportunity for, for China right now to take advantage of the fact that AGOA is stalled in Congress because it has been l- announcing, you know, over the past 12 months, uh, you know, the lowering of tariffs on a number of products uh, to, be, to have access, preferential access to the Chinese market. But let's get it back to, to this discu- discussion between the United States, China, and Africa, because up until now, uh, people like Ambassador Shin, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, you know, has been floating these ideas of this grand Sino-U.S. cooperation in Africa, whether it's on peacekeeping, whether it's on the environment. And one of the things I tweeted this week was the fact that, you know, when you see this kind of acidic rhetoric going between the two sides uh, at the highest levels that we're seeing in public, it seems hard to imagine that there is sufficient trust for the Chinese and the Americans to work on anything together in, in Africa, much less anywhere else. Um, I, you know, on this one, in this particular case, um, it's not surprising to a lot of our, you know, our listeners that, you know, I'm going to come down on the side of the Chinese here because I think that Hillary's being absolutely hypocritical here. You know, when it well, suits I- the Americans to, to kind of pull out the democracy card, they do. When it suits the Americans to kind of support a dictator, remember, let's not forget, it was a year ago that it was the United States, three days before the fall of Mubarak, that said he was not a dictator. Um, we have Bahrain as an example. We have a, Saudi Arabia as an example. We've got a number of African examples that Howard French brought up. You know, so the Americans are very, very selective when it comes to who is a dictator, who is anti-democratic, and who uh, should be uh, supporting democracy. I think there's also a kind of a disconnect between, you know, the highest levels of diplomatic leadership, I guess, in the U.S. I mean, even you say Ambassador Shin, he was... He's known to testify in front of Congress um, and kind of, you know, tell the kind of benefits of um, China's engagement with Africa and kind of encourage some sort of, like you said, you know, Sino-U.S. cooperation and partnership in Africa. And yet, you know, when you hear the rhetoric of Hillary Clinton or even um, the Cong- U.S. congressmen, uh, I think that it's, there's a huge gap between what, you know, ambassadors or leading economists, um, policymakers in the U.S. would, would say and what, um, what, you know, the leadership would say. And I'm not sure if that's like election politics, you know, easy to scapegoat China. Um, but I think there is a disconnect. I, and one more disconnect that I see is the fact that, you know, Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, Johnny Carson, you know, he speaks from the same kind of playbook that, that Hillary Clinton does. 
And, and you know, and my first reaction, and I tweeted this as well, was that it just felt that Hillary Clinton was tone deaf. You know, uh, you know, Kobus, you brought up this fact that there was this paternalistic kind of tone. And when she was in South Sudan as well, she was really kind of telling the South Sudanese basically just to get over it and get on with, you know, with trade with Sudan to kind of revitalize their economy. That makes sense. But at the end of the day, it's also extraordinarily condescending. Um, and, and, you know, the comments that I've heard over the past year from Johnny Carson about the, the Chinese in Africa really feel like, uh, you know, 19th century colonialism and or in 20th century, you know, Cold War rhetoric between the Soviets and the Americans. And they're really playing from this, you know, what I think is a very old school playbook. Kobus, final thoughts on this before uh, yeah, we move on. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, I think I think the other issue, and I think that that's maybe from the African perspective, is, is maybe the more, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of the more specific kind of like like you know kind of real um, side of it is that the Americans don't seem to be backed up by much uh, either you know a lot of kind of of uh, free funds to be able to spend in Africa you know um, the Chinese are coming with uh, with their wallets out you know um, so the, the Chinese I mean whether you like them or not you know you're not going to be able to deny the fact that the, Ch- the Chinese are providing uh, infrastructure the Chinese are actually economically engaged you know the, a lot of the of the American American um, engagement in the, in the case of the Hillary trip has been on the on the level of discourse. It's you know kind of it's, it's perceptions and governance and talking and like you know we should trust each other and, and you know etc cetera, etc. Cetera. You know all of, and, and a lot of the ideas of, are, are valuable I think. But you know I think from an African perspective there's a, there's a feeling like yeah keep talking you know kind of the Chinese are actually paying. Well uh, and that that I think is the big difference. And and to bring to follow up on that point the Chinese are coming at lots of different levels. It's not just on a state level, not on a corporate level. You know we're going to talk a little bit about on an individual and trader level. You know so there's it's a multifaceted engagement. Whereas you know Dambisa Moyo. Uh, the international economist and the author of uh, of a number of books, and now you know you know doing the talk show circuit. She had an appearance on the Daily Show with John Stewart, and and she talked a little bit about how one of the frustrations that she has is that the Americans just won't engage. So Hillary's going out there and talking, uh, but American business is not going. You don't have American young people in large numbers going over to Africa. You don't have the sense of excitement or engagement that you do see coming from the Chinese. Now, please. Before I get more mail, I am not an apologist for the Chinese here. I'm just suggesting the fact that I think that the Americans are being a little bit hypocritical and in support of people like Dembisa Moyo, who are saying her frustration, and this is, Anne, what you were saying as well, uh, you know, on Capitol Hill and in the places of power and the places that count, you're just not getting the response. And final comment to you, then we will definitely move on to Malawi. I mean, I think, Kobus, you're right. The, the U.S. doesn't have the same numbers and the same money that that uh, China can offer. And so I think that, you know, its approach is instead to promote what it can, which is democracy, human rights, you know, transparency and good governance. And, um, you know, people can criticize and say that sometimes we act hypocritically and we don't always have the best uh, human rights record. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I think that uh, we do have a great deal of soft power in the country and I think that in the continent and I think that, you know, uh, people want, people do kind of respect U.S. values and I think that uh, Hillary is just kind of playing off what the U.S. can offer and, um, you know, hopefully American businesses will begin to engage more and kind of feel this competition from the Chinese, but it's still to be seen. 
Okay, this is not a story that's going to die anytime soon. So Hillary, the U.S., China, Africa, um, tensions, you know, fraying at the edges. We will pick up this topic again uh, probably very soon. Uh, but this is, in fact, probably the last time that it will be Hillary in Africa, as she, of course, uh, will likely be stepping down from her role as uh, Secretary of State of the United States uh, in before or just sometime around the next election. So let's move on to Malawi. On July 31st, Malawi I- implemented a new law, and this was, of course, a discussion that we had a couple months ago, uh, you know, limiting the activities of foreign traders. Now, what's very interesting about this is they didn't specify any specific nationality, although everybody really believes that this was targeted at the Chinese. Malawi did what a lot of African countries have been talking about, uh, but yet have acted, but have failed to actually implement. And this is to deal with the pressure of really the growing presence of Chinese small businesses, small enterprises. And when we're talking about small enterprises, these are uh, oftentimes rural. Um, they are one to two, maybe three person shops. They're in, uh, you know, they're they're engaging in the same type of you know market based uh, activity that locals are. And there's a lot of political pressure in a number of different African countries to do something about this because people feel that they are being undercut by this. Uh, Kobus, you have some pretty strong opinions on this on this to- on this topic because it's something that seems to transcend from Namibia to Nigeria to Malawi to South Africa, uh, and there does seem to be something of a growing trend, you know, related to the frustrations that a number of people have with respect to Chinese merchants. What are your thoughts on the Malawi uh, decision? Um, yeah, I have to. Say, I find this incredibly problematic. Kind of the in the first place, you know, kind of, um, the my, my feeling is that that the people who are really going to be suffering from this are, are Malawian consumers, because a lot of the Chinese are offering in the first place are offering products that the Malawian that Malawian traders were not offering before, and they were offering them at prices that the Malawians had never seen before. So you know now where you know. Like, you know, take, for example, you know, it, it starts raining and you need rain boots, you know, kind of like you, you could have had them at, at you know, uh, like one twenty fifth of your of your monthly budget. But now you have to, you know, fork out one eighth of your monthly budget. Um, you know, I just I, I, I find it from, you know, kind of just from a market and, and consumer perspective, I just find this, this so just wrong-headed. Yeah, I mean, for me, the, the thing that I don't like about it, and it has nothing to do with the Chinese, um, I just don't think xenophobia is a good, a, a good policy. Now, that said, I do understand the politics of it. And the politics are, of course, the fact that uh, the Chinese and foreigners make a wonderful target, whether that's in the United States, whether it's in France, whether it's in Africa. It's an easy political uh, you know, win for anybody in power to say, well, okay, I'm going to do something about your problems. Look, I'll get rid of the foreigners. Um, but as I, I agree with you, my experience on the ground in uh, in Kinshasa, and I wrote about this, and you can search on our blog for Meet Mr. Chen, where I profiled one of these very small merchants. He actually was in a very big urban area in Kinshasa. You know, small business, but he brought in these type of consumer goods that uh, people in, 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 in the Congolese capital had never had before, because coming with the Chinese is also a supply chain. Um, you know, of cheap Chinese crap. I mean, what it's really, you know, the Walmart strategy. Now, we in the West oftentimes discount this and, you know, kind of look our noses down on it. But as you talked about, you know, a pair of water boots, um, which would have been, you know, a significant purchase now got cheaper. So there are some real benefits to that. In Zambia, people have been complaining a lot about uh, chicken farmers and Chinese chicken farmers who are using lower quality chickens. They, they, they allege and they accuse of using hormones. Um, and they say they're undercutting 
uh, local uh, Lusaka chicken farmers in the market. Now, that can be looked at, as you pointed out, Kobus, one of two ways. One, it's bad for the chicken farmers. But the other way to look at, and, you know, there's a lot more chicken consumers than there are chicken farmers. I may be missing something in this, but the politics seem to be going the way of the merchants and not the consumer, and that's unfortunate in some respects. Kobus, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. The, also, the other thing is that you know, kind of these um, in the first place, you know, I, I think these kind of these kind of laws um, tend to be bad for the society where they 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 are kind of a small a short term benefit with with kind of bad long term consequences. Because in the first place, not only you know, I don't think protecting one's own merchants against competition is necessarily such a great thing for your society because it, it closes down innovation. In the second place, it also it closes down. Um, the the development of any kind of cosmopolitan, uh, you know, a new, newer kind of state, state-based identity, um, you know, so. You know, people people start to think of you know an incredibly kind of old-fashioned ways of of themselves as essentially Malawian without make, making you know opening up that identity to include kind of people from different ethnicities. And in the case of Africa, that's bad news because Africa has a lot of like a lot of ethnic kind of border problems anyway. You know, kind of so what 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 you generally want to do in Africa is to widen these these kind of state identities and to get more kind of more you know kind of people from varied backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds in. There and have people intermarry and kind of and complicate that identity. You don't want to be closing it down and you know narrowing it because that, in the long run, tends to create problems. Well, let me play the devil's advocate here, and the devil's advocate is the fact that you know locals simply can't compete against Chinese traders in the sense that we know that the that the local the banking system for uh, you know for a lot of local traders is basically broken. Think of a country like Nigeria, where the individual, you know, goes to a bank to get a loan, doesn't have any collateral. The Chinese oftentimes come, you know, join associations that provide the financing to open those businesses. They can set up factories, that, you know, small-scale factories. They can set up and, and innovate in a way that the locals can't. And that must be very, very frustrating to people. So um, they also can, you know, through volume buying, undercut local producers. We've seen this in the textile industry in South Africa. There's a lot of complaints that the fact that Chinese import now are, are, you know, are, are really undermining uh, the local textile industry. This is part of a broader discussion, though, related to the Chinese currency and the undervaluation or the alleged undervaluation of the Chinese currency, which makes their products be able to export so cheaply. So there's a lot of moving parts in this discussion. Um, you know, the, the currency, the RMB, has been appreciating, making it more expensive for China to export to the rest of the world. But that has been really one of the big frustrations. So uh, you know, the, the trend is we've now we should almost keep a ledger here. We've been we've talked about this issue in Namibia. We've talked about it in Nigeria. We've talked about it in South Africa, Malawi. Help me out, uh, Kobus, where well, else have, or Anne, where else we've talked about this? Well, this also came up in Senegal this week. And Kobus, I was going to ask you, um, the story in Senegal was about sort of uh, rather than products like rain boots or things that, you know, kind of expand uh, consumer purchasing power. It was for over things like uh, Ghana ceremonial uh, kente cloth or Afri uh, Senegalese like uh, kind of shoes or uh, wax prints, things that are kind of, um, you know, that people say should be produced by local Africans that the Chinese are kind of copying, lowering the quality um, and then producing for cheaper and kind of selling even more cheaper, even more cheap uh, in, in African markets. And do you think there's any sort of uh, kind of difference or, there, you know, 
should this be treated differently than other kind of Chinese trade and competition? I have to say, I kind of come, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this because on the one hand, I, you know, I can see how traditional, um, traditional, you know, certain kind of um, industries need to be protected. And, and the, the case of the ceremonial shoes in Senegal, I think, is a, is a great example because it's a kind of an old an old fashioned and also um, culturally incredibly valued kind of shoemaking that, that, that results in a fantastic kind of product. And, you know, it has a long history. And, you know, in the case of, for example, you know, kind of other countries, one would, you know, those would be the kind of things that in, for example, in Japan would be registered as, you know, as, as cultural treasures. On the other hand, Africa has always a lot of so much of what we think of in as traditional culture in Africa are actually reuse reusing from from other countries and the the, the wax print fabric is a is a fantastic example because the wax print fabrics originally um, came from Indonesia they were produced by a Dutch multinational who um, who you know kind of producing for Indonesia the Indonesians weren't interested and then they found a different kind of a, you know kind of market for them in in, um, in West Africa and then that became a kind of a, a West African signature kind of fabric to use and now they kind of they they, they are they are known they're known worldwide as African kind of patterning even though a lot of those those um, actual you know, the intellectual property are you know they're, they're still um, owned by this kind of Dutch, Dutch multinational so um you know, kind of Africa is a culture of reuse, um, and I think you know, kind of Africans have found kind of ways of reusing a lot of a lot of Chinese products as well, and and that I I feel that there could be a kind of a, a, a fallout from cutting off these supply chains because Africa has always been a place where people got stuff from from overseas and then turned it into you know to their own advantage. Well, let me let me let me put this idea to to both of you, and Cobus, uh, I'll start with you. Is it any different? You know, in the United States, you know, we have you know incredibly high tariffs on sugar. Um, we subsidize uh, our grain, we subsidize our agriculture, both in Europe, the United States, and Japan, to the point where developing countries can't compete. Why? Because the agricultural lobbies in these countries are extremely important. Those rural constituencies, politics, um, are very very important to the people in power. I mean, is this any different to the you know, they, that politicians in Africa are responding to, you know, an increasingly vocal constituency um, and they want protection the same way that, you know, farmers in Holland and farmers in Nebraska and farmers in Nagoya want protection. Kobus, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, no, I think I think you have a point. Yeah, I think I think you do have a point. The only problem with that is that you know, kind of, this is also the the continent of Idi Amin. You know, kind of, so it it, it is a it, it, there is a, a history, a kind of a precedent of these kind of things going turning bad very quickly. You know, kind of, and, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to kind of to uh, you know to cast Africa into into you know kind of a particular kind of light, but you know there there is that history. Yeah. Um, you know, and and xenophobia is a problem now. Africa and, and and for the and, and that makes me worried. Okay, but just bear in mind it's also the continent of Nelson Mandela. That's true. That's true. So, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean one, one, do, one does need to take a nuanced view of it. It's, yeah. I agree. And, and I guess the question is, how much of this is politics and how much is economics? And that really, you know, is this really to is this was Malawi's decision really to enhance and support the rural farmers and the rural communities in, uh, you know, outside the major cities, or was it as a xenophobic instinct to kind of push the Chinese out? Um, we'll see. But uh, certainly if you gauge by Twitter, which is by all means not a scientific way of gauging anything, 
Um, there is a lot of support for these types of policies, and there is a lot of frustration. I tend to think that people are mixing a lot of issues into the Chinese. They're a very easy target, and uh, they're mixing, as you and I have talked about, you know, going back over a year now, um, the incompetence of their own governance, the incompetence of their own administrations and bureaucracies to bring change and to bring economic reform, and then the Chinese make a nice big target. So I think there's a lot of yeah, I think, influence of major events going on in these policies. I think the other the other issue is also that you know kind of as as you mentioned these these laws tend to not only affect Chinese. I mean, um, if they only affected Chinese people, then that would be one issue because I mean China is a is a world power. But for example, in the case of of Cape Town particularly, um, a lot of the a lot of the the traders who get affected by these kind of um, anti foreign anti foreign trade kind of uh, activism, they're not Chinese necessarily, but they're frequently Somali. Um, you know, so so you you have. Have a, a longer history in Africa of traders moving from one African country to another, and those are also traders who might kind of get kind of squeezed in these kind of these kind of laws in the future. No, it's an important point to bring up that a lot of discrimination in Africa is intra-African. I mean, I thought, I, and funny, I, I didn't think you were going to say Eritrean. I thought you were going to say Zimbabwe. Um, where yeah, there's a lot of Zimbabweans as well. A lot, of, a lot of Zimbabweans as well. as well who suffer uh, tremendous problems. Uh, you know, trying to start businesses and whatnot. So, so it's both. You know, foreigner is both an African term as well as you know a non-African term in that sense. So, I think that's an important point to kind of end this discussion on. But again, just as with our first topic, one that I do anticipate that we will revisit uh, probably sooner than later. So, for our third topic, we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're actually going to talk uh, about ourselves. We don't usually like to talk about ourselves, uh, but we've gotten a number of inquiries, both on our Facebook page and via email, kind of asking us, what's our agenda? Who are we? What are we doing? Why are we doing this? And uh, and what's behind our interest in China, Africa? So just to kind of get started and to kick, get the ball rolling, I'll kind of give a little bit of a background uh, of, of how this kind of came about and who I am. You know, I've been uh, studying Chinese now going on 27 years. I was in China back in 1989. So I'm definitely, I think I'm the oldest of the group here at 42. So I'm the, I'm the granddad here. Um, and I've been a journalist for, you know, 25 years at CNN, CNBC, the BBC. Uh, most recently, I was at France 24. Uh, I'm now actually in Vietnam, and uh, I'm running uh, the largest uh, business news channel in Vietnam. So all throughout with journalism, but I also had a stay in Kinshasa. Uh, I've spent, uh, I went, went back and forth over a number of years uh, for five, uh, five plus years, went back and forth um, to, to, to Kinshasa. And it was during those trips that I saw uh, the huge changes that were occurring. Uh, I mean, my first trip to Kinshasa in 2005, you know, virtually no Chinese. By the time I moved there in 2010 to live, um, you know, the Chinese were there in an unmistakable way. So, uh, you know, that's where my interest started. I had been blogging on mainland Chinese politics for a long time on Sino-U.S. relations. And then I, you know, I just saw this incredible trend, you know, happening. My only goal in, in this project um, is to highlight uh, the hypocrisies of, of all parties. <laughs> so I, you know, as you see, I like, you know, I like to find the inconsistencies in the American position. I love to find the inconsistencies in the African position. And then, of course, in the Chinese position. Um, and so I kind of started this blog. And then I found Cobus uh, via Twitter. I literally put out a, a tweet on my saying, anybody want to do a, a weekly podcast with me? And Cobus kind of uh, responded, was the first to respond. Uh, Cobus, what was your interest in in doing this co this podcast? Well, um, 
you know, kind of, I also come from a, from a journalism background. I worked as a as a TV journalist in uh, in South Africa for the South African Broadcasting Corporation for for a while in the late nineties, um, and then I um, I got a Japanese government development scholarship to um, to do post grad work in Japan. So I moved to Japan in two thousand one, um, and you know, I only I, after that I only I spent only brief brief bits in in South Africa, you know, um, to visit my parents and so on, and then um, after I. I finished my work there. I moved back to South Africa in 2008, and in the the gap that I was, you know, between 2001 and 2008, South Africa had completely changed. You know, kind of the um, and the presence of of Chinese in South Africa, the physical presence of Chinese, and the the part of the part that China engagement kind of started to play in the the, the discourse in South Africa had completely changed. So um, then I started working um, as an investigative journalist uh, for a TV show in South Africa. Um, and, uh, you know, I was directing a bunch of different documentaries, um, and some of the doc- documentaries was about uh, about how, you know, about, about economic development and, and kind of economic development policy. And uh, we did a bunch of, of documentaries where we looked at different um, Asian uh, Asian examples concentrating on China and on South Korea. Um, and, you know, so I became very interested in that. Um, and as I was working for them, like one day I was checking my, my phone in, uh, you know, kind of tw- checking Twitter um, while walking around in, on the street in Cape Town and I saw you your tweet, you know, kind of when I just decided to respond um, and since then I've uh, I've actually started moved back to academia so at the moment uh, you know my work at Stellenbosch University is is uh, looking particularly at, at Chinese and Japanese engagement in in um, sub-Saharan Africa so I've, I'm really trying to to kind of to to suss out you know kind of what this kind of East Asian African relationship really is like what they really think about each other and also for me personally it's you know <laughs> You know, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm South African. I was born in South Africa. My family has been in South Africa for many generations. But I'm um, of your, you know, originally European extraction, albeit you know, like you know, 200 years ago. Um, so in a way, you know, kind of, I, I find myself in a position where I'm trying to kind of work out for myself personally what it really means to be African and what an African identity really is. Um, and how that relates to the rest of the world, and you know, and and also as someone who spent a lot of time in Asia, like how being African, who with an Asian kind of uh, connection, like what what that actually also means. So that's basically where I come from. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You are also a Japanese speaker. Yes. Excellent. Yes. Okay. I, you know, my, I'm, 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 um, I'm learning Chinese at the moment, but my Chinese is still very weak. Like I'm, I'm coming from it from a Japanese perspective, and you know, I lived in Japan so long, and my partner is Japanese, and um, you know, we, uh, you know, so so Japanese is my third language, and um, and you know, kind of when I speak Chinese, I find Japanese. I have to so literally suppress Japanese to try and get Chinese out. You know, so it's yeah. one of those. Like it's a bit of a struggle at the moment, but yeah, that's that's what's what it's like. Well, I'm the opposite. I lived in Japan for a year when I was reporting for the Associated Press, and I had to do the opposite, where I was actually applying tones to Japanese, you know, hiragana, katagana. <laughs> so that got all, all messed up. Uh, and the newest member of our team is is Anne Sherman, and kind of approached me on Twitter, uh, said, and really what I loved about your first initial tweets was, I just want to be involved in this uh, anyway. And that's when I came up with the idea of, like, this idea of creating a Facebook page and and kind of has just run with it in a beautiful way. And that's really, she deserves the credit for our 13,000 people that we have on Facebook in this really dynamic community. But Anne, you know, aside from telling us about your background, tell us a little bit also about your future and what you're going to be doing. 
Sure. Well, I mean, so I'm I'm the youngest member of the group, and you know, I approached you, Eric, because I really just want to continue learning um, from both you all and from our community on Facebook, because um, this is really a topic I'm really passionate about, and I think that. You know, people ask what our agenda is, and for me, I think I'm sort of trying to better understand, kind of, you know, debunk some of the myths that Americans have, both of China and, you know, Sino-U.S. Uh, relations, and also of China-Africa relations. And so I first um, got the opportunity to go to China in 2009 um, as part of a Model United Nations conference that I was helping with, and um, I'd never been to China before, I didn't know all that much about it and I was completely um, sort of amazed by by China and it was completely different than I think China and Chinese are portrayed in the US. Um, and so then uh, the following year in 2010 I had the opportunity to study in Senegal and um, one of the first days I was in Senegal I was exploring downtown Dakar and I happened upon a huge Chinatown there. And it was sort of the last thing that I ever expected to see while I was in Senegal. Um, and so while I was there, the rest of the semester, I actually ended up befriending some uh, Chinese telecom workers from Huawei and also took a Chinese course in French in Senegal um, with other Senegalese from a, a Chinese exchange <laughs> teacher who was from Wuhan. and. Um, it was just one of the most fascinating experiences, and ever since then, I've been hooked on this topic and kind of um, trying to, you know, better understand it and, uh, you know, from an American perspective, kind of figure out, like, what are the realities of, of this engagement and, you know, how should the U.S. react to it and how should the U.S. view it um, and maybe, you know, how can the U.S. better cooperate with China and with China in Africa. Um, and so, you know, I, I graduated from Penn last year, and I've kind of been working in Washington, D.C. in the meantime, but um, wanted to stay engaged with the topic, and that's how I found you all on Twitter. Um, but this has kind of all been in preparation for my next move, um, which is to return to Beijing to uh, kind of continue studying China-Africa relations um, and also try to learn Mandarin, which I think is sort of essential in really understanding Chinese foreign policy and China's engagement with Africa. No, it's absolutely essential. And it's also essential to be able to understand, you know, when you go on the ground to talk to people in, in both in Africa and in China, you know, to get past the, the kind of very superficial, you know, headlines that we see so, so much in the media. And really, I think what you're hearing from all three of us is this is we have one very, very simple agenda. It's not, you know, there's no partisanship at all among Europe, the United States, China, Africa, any of the of the actors. It's really just to kind of discuss the issue. You know, when Cobus and I started the podcast, we said at the end of the day, we really don't care how many people listen to it because it was just a, an excuse for us to have a good discussion about it. So, so there's only one, uh, if there is an agenda, it's really to try and just kind of spark a discussion, have a discussion, and, uh, and shed some light on, on what is such an incredibly important geopolitical relationship that is so poorly understood, as Anne kind of pointed out. Poorly understood, very important to mention the fact that the levels of ignorance that I find are just as high in China, the United States, and in Africa, and, and, and certainly in, in Europe. When I, when I was in, in France, I mean, 
there was, you know, just the levels of cluelessness were, were stunning. So, so I think that's really what we're trying to do is to try to kind of, you know, inject the conversation with a few more talking points. So that's a little bit about us. If you have questions, um, you know, we're very, very transparent. And so somebody on Facebook asked me, you know, who I am and, you know, where I'm coming from on this issue. And I, you know, threw up my, my, my LinkedIn page, put my portfolio up there. So there's, there's really nothing to hide. And that's the nature of, of web journalism today is to kind of say, you know, here's where we are. Here's our position on this. If you agree, we'd love to hear it. If you disagree, even better. Uh, you know, spark the conversation. Facebook is the best place. Twitter is also a good place. Uh, let's go around the horn quickly and uh, talk about our Twitter accounts. Kobus, where can people find you on Twitter if they want to argue with you? Um, I'm at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Okay, while we're getting personal here and kind of, you know, opening up and sharing our feelings and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> what, where did Stadenesk come from as a Twitter name? I don't know. It was one of those things where, like, one one morning I'm like, oh, I should be on Twitter, you know, and then this is basically the first thing that came, you know, <laughs> that nice. came up in my mind, and now I'm like, I've been suffering from that you know, okay. for, for years now. I was hoping there was a more dramatic story behind it, but apparently no, there's sadly. not. Okay. And, uh, Anne, where can people find you on Twitter if they want to follow what you're saying? They can find me at annesher07, A-N-N-E-S-H-E-R-07. Wonderful. And I'm over at E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting almost every day. And uh, we're also, all three of us are on our Facebook page. Again, that's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. You can find this podcast both on SoundCloud um, or also on iTunes. And we'd love it, love it, love it if you'd leave some comments and feedback on iTunes because that helps us kind of move up the hype, the iTunes food chain. Also, all the feedback does count. Again, positive, negative, indifferent, whatever. All of it helps us and uh, to help you, you know, kind of, you know, grow this discussion and whatnot. The other thing, final point, um, we're kind of extracting more and more people from the Facebook community to appear on the show as guests. So if you'd like to you know, talk about a different idea, uh, you know, you've got something to say, let us know, post on our Facebook wall. Uh, and uh, we've had a number of inquiries and it's a great source of information, a great source of guests. So we'll see you on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, you name it. We'll see you there. And of course, we'll be again here next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>